Hey there, Next Real listeners. This is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Lamp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Oi! Each month on the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us. And instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, sound mixer Michael B. Koff, a.k.a. Coffee. Coffee got the bug for the movie biz when Mrs. Doubtfire filmed outside his high school. Every day, he'd watch from behind the barricade, fascinated with the equipment, the people, the process. Eventually, he found his way to London, where he spent his junior year of college getting an emphasis in film. It was there that he got his first real-world experience, falling in with the sound guy on MTV Europe. After graduation, he moved to L.A. and ended up in reality TV, mixing the sound in shows all around the world. But Coffee always found the sound in the scripted world so much more attractive so after five years, he took a leap of faith and switched focus. Needless to say, things have worked out well so far. Coffee has mixed sound for such movies as The Kingdom, Piranha 3D, Percy Jackson in the Sea of Monsters, Hot Tub Time Machine 2, Casa de Mi Padre, and most recently, our favorite little monster movie, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Recently, he worked on the Zach Galifianakis, Kristen Wiig, Owen Wilson, Kate McKinnon comedy Masterminds, coming out later this year, and he's currently in Boston working with Peter Berg on Patriot's Day, the true story of the Boston Marathon bombing. 
When he's not busy on set, Coffee has recently become a licensed private pilot and plane owner and spends as much time as he can both in the air and on the ground with his family. Welcome to the show, Coffee. Thank you. Now, you are bringing a film uh, that should be quite a fun one to talk about. This is uh, the film that uh, Guy Ritchie did following up Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. It is Snatch. It is Snatch. I Okay, I've got questions. Uh, two questions. Now, first, and I don't want to get any hopes up because we have been asked before to talk about Tarantino, but your original pick was Pulp Fiction. And then you call, you gave us a last-minute audible and said, hey, what about Snatch? Yeah. So I'm dying to know... Why did you uh, why did you want to shake this up and and uh, talk about Snatch instead? You know, when I started thinking about Pulp Fiction, um, the things that I like about it, the the reason the things that I liked about it are the things that are emphasized in Snatch throughout. You know, there's moments in Pulp Fiction that that kind of bring the beginning, the end back to the beginning and and, and reverse, and that's exactly what I liked about Snatch is is basically the the way the film was shot is uh, is not in order. It's not in logical order, and, and it, it kind of goes. It's not as bad as Memento. Memento is a bit more. Uh, you know, I like working in reverse and, and kind of reverse engineering the story, and Snatch does that in, in a way that doesn't require too much thinking, unlike Memento, but it doesn't do it enough in Pulp Fiction. Um, not to mention, Pulp Fiction is a little more mainstream. Uh, and I'm amazed at how many people still haven't seen Snatch. Totally agree with that, yeah. That was a big thing uh, when you switched it up. I mean, I, I watched Pulp Fiction again. I was excited to talk about it, but then you brought up Snatch, and I was like, gosh, yeah, I haven't seen that since it was in theaters. I remember enjoying it, but I don't really remember much about it, and so it is, it's actually really refreshing to talk about this film, and actually was really exciting to watch it again because I just hadn't seen it in so long, and uh, I kind of, uh, it rekindled my joy for the film because it is really kind of just nothing but fun. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a fun interview entertaining film and I feel like it and I think it was brilliantly done uh in terms especially of transitional storytelling you know uh the way that they transition in between all of these different people and their individual stories is amazing uh and it's just one wild ride you know I feel like Pulp Fiction's got peaks and valleys whereas uh Snatch is kind of just high octane and as soon as you think it's going to get dull and, and one of the other characters all of a sudden walks through the door randomly and, and are now part of that main storyline. Frankie Four Fingers has a diamond the size of a fist. 86 carats. You know something that I've done? Jeez, it's flawless. Where? London. London. You know, fish, chips, cup of tea, Mary Poppins, London. What do I know about diamonds? I'm a boxing promoter. I've got a bare knuckle fight. I want to use the pikey. Let's get back to the concentrate. Ah... Uh. What? Gonna have to repeat that. Bet you've actually there. Can't you try? You what? What is a gun doing in the trousers? For protection. Protection from what? The Germans. <laughs> Over the case, I'll give you the stone. The only man who knew the combination. You just shot. In the quiet words of the Virgin Mary, come again. Yeah, there's this term that, uh, that Pete and I were arguing about <laughs> before the show. That somebody came up with um, uh, uh, probably about 10 years ago called hyperlink cinema, which is kind of this type of story that involves a number of different stories that are all kind of interwoven and everything. And and despite the uh, maybe silliness of the actual uh, title, 
Um, I, I really do love this type of storytelling that you see where it's got a whole bunch of different stories and they kind of all weave together and you see these characters kind of in and out of each other's lives and, and, but usually what they do is I like how it all kind of ends up tying up at the end. And the way that you've got this diamond story about this diamond heist, and then you have this boxing story with these boxing promoters and how everything comes together. And I, I really, in particular, love the fact that these two stories kind of collide in this really interesting way where the guys in the boxing world end up with this dog from the diamond world and have no idea about this whole other world until they get the dog examined. Yeah, it's cool. And there's also a lot of relationship uh, storyline in there, too. I mean, this is uh, this is one of the few movies, I feel like, that doesn't involve any kind of female. Uh, there isn't a single woman in this movie. And it's not about love. It's not about trying to get the girl. It's literally about um, the underbelly of, of amateur crime. Uh, and it's hilarious. Like even the, you know, the thing that I loved about it too, is the terminology that they use because it's British. Uh, I found myself, I find myself quoting snatch, um, you know, quotes from that so often. And, you know, I watched it yesterday too, and I haven't seen it in probably six or seven years. And I was just laughing hysterically and, you know, uh, tomorrow I'm sure I'll be spitting out more lines from it that I forgot. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, it's cool because of the fact that, you know, in the very beginning, it basically just shows you the 10 or 12 characters that uh, that are going to play a part in the movie. And at some point, they all end up crossing paths and, and becoming part of each other's story. Which is really artfully done. I Have you ever, have either of you taken a look at the script, at no. Richie's original script? Andy, did you ever? I have not. No, I didn't. I, and I haven't read it all either. But I, I found an interesting interview with the producer of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels that got me thinking about this, which is, you know, she said, when I first got this movie, the script was a disaster. It was incredibly difficult to read. It was a mess full of just crazy typos. And it was so tied up in knots in characters. She said, I actually had to make like a flow chart of character interactions as I was reading it. And I kept thinking to myself, why am I doing this? Why am I taking a chance on this movie when the script is nearly impenetrable and realized that I was laughing a lot, that it ended up just being funny. And so I decided to take a chance on it. And I, I'm, I'm excited to actually sit down and read the script because I'm, I wonder just how much better Richie has gotten between that and this film because they're very similar. I almost feel like this film is you know, lock stock perfected. I think a lot of people, you know, look at this as, as you know, the criticism of the film is this is lock stock redux. And, and I really disagree with that. I, I think this is just a, uh, takes what he already did well in lock stock and made it um, really exceptional. Yeah. I mean, when, when I first saw it, there was obvious, uh, you know, there was some character crossovers mm -hmm. to lock stock, but I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't I don't associate the two uh, as being the same movie or, or a better one or the other. I feel I felt like at that point after watching Snatch that it was kind of Guy Ritchie's stamp uh, these kind of movies. But I think really, that's probably he, a better way to put it. Yeah. But really, he hasn't done it since Snatch. He did the uh, Sherlock Holmes movies and and stuff like that, but none of them really 
touched me personally the way Snatch did. Yeah. yeah, he really kind of has stayed away from this. I mean, his style is definitely there. But as far as the way that he does the storytelling, I mean, I guess you could say he kind of played around with it a little bit, maybe in something like The Man from Uncle, just as far as kind of right. the flashbacks as to when, when you'd find something out and you'd jump back in time to kind of get back to the point, kind of that nonlinear storytelling a little bit. But nothing to the to the extent that he did here or in Lockstock. I really wanted to watch Lockstock again before uh, talking about this one. I just didn't have a chance. But I remember really enjoying both. And I think you're right. I think the style is there. The characterizations are there. The storytelling is, is pretty similar. But I think they're both such different stories with such vastly different characters that for me, it's just like two great films by a great director. You know, I didn't feel like I was just watching Lockstock all over again. Right. I think he does some, and I guess when I when I say that, it's really the visual, like you say, the visual stamp that he has on these things, and how exciting it was to watch this film again and see uh, that glorious slow mo at the end uh, that of uh, uh, Brad Pitt, you know, flying through the air and looking at watching how they made that that did that right. sequence, you know, shot him underwater, they right. shot when him floating at eight hundred films, eight hundred frames per second. They did, I mean, just a number of things, and then to watch Sherlock Holmes, which I had a great time watching Sherlock Holmes. Like you said, they didn't have that much of an impact, but visually, the uh, the way they orchestrate the the Sherlock Holmes predictive fight sequences, I think, were exceptional and tied directly back to to this kind. Of style. Yeah, I just the really fight love sequences it. were exactly the same. Yeah, um, as was the music. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, during during the fight sequences, the music and snatches is fantastic. You know, everything from the fast paced stuff to the Jewish, you know, the Jewish ringtones. I mean, I feel like it's one of the best opening sequences of a movie uh, in terms of you know after Turkish says you know and they're from Antwerp and they go into the security footage thing where the camera doesn't cut and the camera basically is just following. These four or five rabbis, uh, you know, going from from layer to layer, getting through security to bring us into the first scene of the actual movie post credit is awesome. Uh, you know, no, no one else is, has done that. And it's just a very creative way to show this what could be a huge walk and talk that's logistically, you know, a logistical nightmare to shoot and a narrative nightmare to follow. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that annoys me about that is the sound uh, of that opening sequence because there's no perspective on what you're seeing. You're hearing them like they're in a booth talking. Um, It's not well synced. And, you know, I'm all about perspective audio being a sound mixer. If somebody's deep in the background, I want it to, you know, I'm mixing it to to sound like they're deep in the background. I don't want the presence of, uh, you know, of somebody right in front of camera. In that whole sequence, the perspective never changed. So even though you're on a security camera watching them 40 feet away walk towards a security camera, the perspective of the audio is still like they're, you know, right underneath a boom mic or whatever. Right. So even if we're listening to it through the speaker in the security office, it should still be crappier audio if they're standing far away. We should hear that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't hear them at the far end. And honestly, what they're talking about doesn't matter. I feel like that all that dialogue should have been mixed in a way that is bright and tinty and, you know, crackly and what what it would sound like to the security guys that are actually sitting there watching the security footage. Um, but, you know, I pick things apart, especially when it comes to sound. So, <laughs> you know, that that's one of those things that, you know, there, there was quite a few uh, issues with the sound, if you will, but, um, you know, it doesn't affect the storytelling to me. Like, it's still an amazing story. Yeah, and I can see the point that you have there because, I mean, really, that that 
you know, their conversation about, you know, the Virgin Mary and everything, it's, it's very superfluous. And it's just one of those random conversations I suppose they would be having if they're trying to, you know, pose as rabbis in this, in this heist. I mean, so it kind of makes sense, but the fact that we're hearing it that way doesn't make sense. But that being said, in the context of the story itself, you're right. I mean, it's such a great way to open the film where you've got this, it's a very um, uh, steady uh constrained way to kind of open where you just are following them on the security feed up until they get into this room leading into just just the most bonkers way to shoot the robbery with you've got these crazy 360 spins of the image you've got these cuts where it like stretches the image apart and then then puts it back together as a different image and it's just it's bonkers but it's it's it is a great contrast that they set up there and so I I absolutely loved it, and I forgot all about it. So it was really exciting to me. I totally even forgot that was Benicio del Toro until until he walked in and uh, started the robbery and everything. So it was just a uh, it was just so much fun to watch that way. Yeah, and even even once you know even once he gets into the truck, and uh, you know he holds out the diamond. It's like the way that they introduce every character by going into that diamond, and then you know throwing the throw, throwing the pack of money over to Saul or or you know who, whoever's next. And they go through all the all the characters of Boris the Blade and Bullet Tooth Tony and you know Cousin Avi and it's it's really cool that they basically transition through that one diamond and then come right back to the diamond and and continue the story. It is a fantastically innovative character introduction sequence, and it also sets the stage for uh, it, allowing us to keep better track of who these people are, right? I mean, there's that whole kind of visual learner technique coming in here. You have to see the names associated with these people to keep track of them because they're such a big cast. Credit for the for the opening credit sequence goes to Stuart Hilton and Ian Cross at FAQ Design, and uh, you know uh, Will Perkins writes of their uh, of their contribution on Art of the Title that. Uh, uh, cool as hell circa 2000, but the opening minutes of Snatch almost single-handedly reinvigorated the British gangster movie. Uh, and, and I think that's true. It is It absolutely is a, an incredible way to introduce this film. And, and I would say even not just the British cinema, British gangster films, but I mean, you know, uh, what was that one we were talking about earlier? Smoke and Aces, yeah. which is the, a Vegas story. I mean, it, that felt very much um, a part of, of this type of filmmaking, like they pulled directly from this film. Yeah, I remember seeing that as well and, and thinking the same thing. I mean, I, I love gangster films and, and British films and... Um, you know, if it's a heist, I'm I'm all about it. Well, and you can see so much of this influencing another another one that I just really have a great time with is the Ocean series. I really love the big cast series and the heist, and you can absolutely see the influence of this kind of just the visual treatment of the heist and keeping track of big casts that you know and the split screens and all the fun stuff. I, I haven't seen, and keep in mind, I'm not a movie buff. Uh, I you know. Between work and family and all that, I, I don't get a whole lot of free time unless I'm on location like I am now to go to the movies. But I haven't seen any other films that really use the transitional storytelling the way Guy Ritchie does. Um, because he does it without dialogue. He does it with music. And, and like, for example, the, the dogs chasing the hare, right? So it's all slow motion of these dogs, two dogs chasing one poor little hare. Meanwhile, cutting back and forth to big man Tyrone, or Tyrell, or whatever his name is, you know, running from the gangsters from Bricktop through the streets, and we're just constantly going back and forth, and the hare is just ahead, and Tyrone's just ahead. And, you know, you almost expect Tyrone to get away as soon as you see the hare leave the frame, but, of course, he doesn't because he's big and 
gets caught, whatever. But, you know, like those kind of back and forth type of cuts that are telling the same story. I just, I don't know. I dig it. I love that. That's one of my favorite sequences in there. And, uh, you know, I, I, the the parallelism that we get through these stories. Uh, the other one that really sticks out at me is pretty much any time uh, Farina is on the phone with anybody. Yeah. Uh, they're fantastic, right? <laughs> yeah. On screen, period. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he's just <laughs> terrific. But the, the opening sequence when he's talking to Frankie Fourfingers to, uh, you know, about about the diamond he's talking about london and introducing london and it keeps cut cutting back to del toro who is getting a suit fitted and every every time he cuts he's wearing a different suit like he's wearing different clothes but the, <laughs> yeah. there's only just the line like there's no way he could have done that i find that hysterical but but introducing his gambling problem without really talking about the gambling problem while they're on the phone together, I think is brilliant. He, he says, oh, you know, there's, there's, you got to go deal this with a bookie. And then it cuts to all those stills of Del Toro making bad decisions over the, over the, the phone little call. Viva Las Vegas flash. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's the same way with how they show, uh, you know, Farina going to London and coming back from London. It's just, you know, it, it's a seven second sequence and it gets the point across and it's just like, you know, when he comes back and Custom says, is there anything to declare? And he says, yeah, don't go to London. <laughs> anything to declare? Yeah, don't go to England. You know, I love, the, I mean, something that I think that some of these gangster films like this, Ocean's Eleven, have, have really done well is blending storylines between so many different people. And, uh, I mean, I think it's hard when you have a cast that's so big to give them all fair amount of screen time to tell everybody's stories. Somehow these guys do it so well. And that, I think, has been kind of a complaint in, in big superhero films like X-Men and Avengers that people are always so con- concerned about. Like, how are you going to be able to tell the stories of so many different people? And it's, it, I think, for some reason, it seems harder there. But here, they do it so well. And I love how they all have their own little storylines. And I think that it's possible Possibly something some of the superhero films could take is is giving other people different storylines to do so you could have all these storylines tied together. My favorite storyline here was actually Vince, Tyrone, and Saul with all their robberies that they kept trying to do and how nothing <laughs> nothing would go right for these guys. And it was so funny, like when they go into the bookie place and, and they are going to take all the money from the bookies and there's no money there. And the woman is just too savvy and she keeps shutting the, the doors on them and everything. Yeah, I, I I agree. In fact, one of the quotes that I always I'm always quoting on set because, you know, I, I have I have a sound trailer and of course I always want it close to set. And usually the number one reason is because it's too tight, because they, we can't fit it in there. And I'm always saying, too tight, you could land a jumbo <laughs> f- jet in there. <laughs> and Transpo doesn't get they don't like it, you know? Like that's probably the number one thing not to say to Transpo because then I'm further and further from set. We got to talk about Brad Pitt. Yeah, uh, because it, I think this fits into that storyline. And to your point, Andy, I, I wonder if if one of the challenges that these big, you know, the superhero films are are struggling with is that even if they don't necessarily have characters that are played by a list actors, they do have a list characters that pe- everybody's watching. You know, they're watching really, really closely. And this, as an original property, nobody's watching as closely about which character gets what, what kind of treatment. In this case, if there was ever a, a bit of uh, that could be uh, construed as stunt casting this is it brad pitt as the the crazy uh gypsy bare knuckle boxing champion uh speaking this crazy 
kind of uh, rural Irish brogue, not brogue, rural Irish tongue that people hardly understand. Which was a great uh, uh, rip on, uh, uh, or that something Guy Ritchie came up with, kind of almost spoofing Lockstock because so many people complained about not being able to understand anybody in that film. So he said, well, why don't I just have a character that even the characters in the movie can't understand, which I thought was a great way to kind of, uh, you know, rip on all of his critics who had a problem with that. It's so fun listening to to Brad Pitt as he tries to talk as as Mickey. He's amazing, you know, and he keeps it consistent throughout too. It's almost like he created his own dialect, and uh, it's throughout the movie. It's it's a consistent tongue, and the more you watch it, the more it makes sense, and and you totally get what he's saying. What's really funny if you watch it with the subtitles on, you can totally hear it. It's oh, all really? right there. It's like a code that kind of opens up, and and it's like the Matrix. You can suddenly see the pattern. Uh, it's bananas. It, he is really, really good. I found myself just transfixed by transfixed by his character, uh, and and thought he he totally pulled it off. I didn't feel stunty at all. Uh, and to that point about giving equal time, they did not give him Brad Pitt time. You know what I mean? Like he ended up not the star of this film. It was very much an ensemble piece. I I remember reading, and I didn't do the research that you did, but I remember reading that he didn't take his his normal rate. He didn't, you know, he wanted to be part of the film and work with Guy, and uh, you know, it was a small part, so to speak. But you know, he the thing is, which is kind of odd, is I don't think he steals the show, and he's the biggest name, especially on American soil. But I feel like he fits into the storyline perfectly. He's one of the many characters that I feel like it's hard to pinpoint any one character in this movie that kind of runs away with it and, and holds it up because I think Vinnie Jones is hilarious. He's fantastic. Who doesn't even come into the film until the end of the second act? Right, and and, and Bricktop. I mean, he's just ruthless and mean and you know his when he starts talking about uh nemesis all i could think about was pulp fiction uh you know talking about the the biblical uh you, you know I'm talking strike about strike him down with ruthless yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> with, with, with the aloha burger or whatever yeah. it is um Check out 25, the big brain on yes Brad. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt was amazing, but he he was just one more character that, you know, made the story go. By the time you get to the end, you realize that that him and these so-called pikeys, as everybody refers to them, are actually some of the most intelligent people in the film, as, as we find out that they've basically uh, found a way to uh, come out ahead of everybody by the time we get to the end. And I think a lot of that, and you mentioned no women in the film, uh, except for the key character of his mother, and how that, uh, you know, how <laughs> Top makes a really bad decision in uh, in burning the caravan with his mother in it because that really uh, puts him into a place where I mean they come up with this plan to basically uh, you know take down Bricktop and his uh, crew and uh, and they end up winning you know and I, I think that's a, a really interesting little uh, element to this story that's completely unexpected completely unexpected and somehow it's this gypsy group that ends up tying every one of the stories together. They're the ones who destroy the gangs that are waiting at the camp. Brad Pitt's obviously in the ring and messing with the thing. They're in the alley out the back. And they're the, the guys who uh, gave the dog or sold the dog to uh, to Saul, who yep. uh, uh, ends up, you know, with with the dog and the diamond and everything. That's See, now, now, how did Saul end up with the dog? Because the dog was given to Tommy. Right. But, then given- Saul, but then Saul comes into the shop with a dog. And I don't understand where that dog came from. 
and and how they found it back at the Pikey site or, or the campsite because they never went there to begin with. It was Tommy and and the big guy or. Yeah, Tommy and the big guy that went there to buy the caravan. But did they leave with that that dog? I thought that it was a different dog that they left with. I could be wrong. Because it was no, it was it was the the dog came from um that was uh what's his name's Saul's friend. What was his uh, Vinny came in with the dog. It was a different dog at the at the camp. Vinny came in. Was Vinny behind the glass or was Saul? Yeah, Vinny was behind the glass. So. Yep. And Saul comes in with a dog. And he says, where did that come from? And there's not, it, there's no explanation of how that dog came into the picture, even though the, na- the movie is named because of that dog. Because the dog snatches. And the right. dog snatched the diamond, and the dog has the diamond. But I don't, I, I don't fully understand where that dog came from and how Vinny knew to go back to some pikey site to find the dog. I swear it was a different dog when when Tommy and Gorgeous George were driving away. I thought it was a different dog. Cuz I I mean cuz they had a bunch of dogs. Even, that was... even right. No, but even if it was a different dog, how do you explain Vinny knowing to go to some pikey campground to find the dog? Because Saul says, "Where did you find it?" And Vinny says, "It went right back to the to the campground." Well, the funny part the funny part about this dog was they actually had to replace it um, partway through filming because the dog was apparently very difficult to work with. The scene when uh, Vinny's in the back seat with the dog, um, he was wearing, I guess, a fur coat of some sort, and the dog decided to start humping him. <laughs> I, I, uh, I heard that, and while Saul's up front and the dog is biting the hood of his jacket, right. uh, you can kind of see Saul crack and start laughing for a minute. Because it was all very, you know, it, it was not supposed to happen that way. <laughs> and I guess he was also a biter. And uh, yeah, and I, I think he bit somebody at some point when it was around the scene when he ended up eating the diamond um, and he bit somebody and uh, they had to uh, say goodbye to Bo and uh, get a new dog to work with. I think he I think he bit Lenny, right? Lenny James well, Saul? Yeah, I think bit so. Bit him in his stomach. Really? Right. Yeah. How, I mean, you, you guys have researched this movie a bit. I mean, do you have any idea uh, what the schedule was like? How many shoot days they did this in? I don't have that information. I'm always curious because the budget, the overall budget wasn't much. I want to say no, it was, it was just like a 10 15 million. million. It, it was, was 10 million. million. Yeah, wow. $10 million budget. So not uh, not very big. Not very big. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if they said anything in the commentary. And I am not. Uh, I didn't write that down if they did say it. So. Okay, I will confirm at this point. It is a totally different dog. In okay, the beginning. it did jump out the window. Totally okay. different dog. The first time we are introduced to the dog that takes the the squeaky and the diamond is through Vinny when he uh, walks down the street with the dog on a leash and enters the bookies or the the pawn shop. Right, and that dog. I guess the loophole that we're trying to close here is how did that dog know how to get back to the gypsy campground? I don't think it's about how did the dog know. It's how did Vinny know to go to the campground that Brad Pitt is at, that Tommy and Turkish are also visiting to Be- get the caravan. Well, I, I still think it's how the dog know. Give the dog, do we, do we just take it on faith that the dog also came from that campground? Because the dog had to know how to get back there. Yeah, well, because he- later in the scene, um, Saul says, how did the dog know, know to go right back to where it came from or something along those right. lines? And so it's just crazy coincidence that that dog also happens to be the same place where the bare knuckle boxing champ happened to live and the mother got burned out. So once again, you're basically backing up your point that the Pikes kind of uh, everything revolves around them and that they have their finger on every part of this story. They are the, they are the singularity. Wow, look at that. Uh-huh. Yep. 
They were the Crazy dog was stuff. a plant. The dog was a plant. It was a pikey plant. <laughs> I do love that the dog does end up swallowing the squeaky toy, and that was a, a note that I had. Is you know I love the consistency every time you get back to the dog that the dog is squeaking. I know yeah. every time they touch the dog, it squeaks. They pat it, it squeaks. That you know you talk about sound work. That is that's really great little like touch that little nuance of keeping that in. They didn't have to do that. We wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, I know it. But it's humor. Yeah. Uh, I feel like they they add that stuff in. I mean, even they do it through the music, too, with all of the Hava Nagila, you know, ringtones and stuff like that. But that's all post work. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of one of my favorite sequences, too, is when all three parties are driving. This is when Cousin Avi and uh, and Bulletooth Doni and and Avi are driving with uh, Avi's assistant with the sword in the back. You know, they crash because because uh, Tommy throws a, a shake outside of his window. And then that creates Boris the Blade getting hit by a car because Saul and and uh, and Vinny are testing their replica guns, which blows them out and, you know, creates distraction. And they hit him when they're driving like that whole sequence. Uh, I watched a couple of times because the timing was just awesome. The timing was awesome. Apparently that stunt when the car runs up on that post on that pole as the car came back down it it like settled on the pole and the pole went up through the chassis of the car and that apparently was not supposed to happen and uh there was there was some to do that it was like this close from seriously injuring one of the uh, stunt guys or maybe actors i don't know if they actually did their their stunt i would doubt uh, that that was super dangerous that sequence i think is is a brilliant sequence because it uses that non-linear storytelling so well where you see the whole thing kind of from from uh, uh Vinny and uh, and saul's perspective first as they are driving and the, they shoot the replica and blow out all the windows and then all of a sudden there's this guy in front of them that they run down and then you kind of cut back to the other story and you kind of see this thing happen three different times from different perspectives as you see them, as you see the story with uh, Turkish and Tommy, and then as you see the story uh, with uh, Cousin Avi and uh, Bullet Tooth Tony. And it's it's great how you kind of blend those three stories together in this nonlinear way so you really kind of piece together the order that it all happened. And it just make, makes it so fun to watch. And it's... and. Uh, I don't know. It's it, that type of storytelling. I think is just really invigorating in cinema because you can uh, the shifting of perspectives as you see things that you, uh, you how did that happen? Then all of a sudden you know how it happened, and you're looking forward to seeing how the pieces all the pieces come in uh, and and work together. And I think he does does it so well here. That recursive uh, pattern in the film too. It feels like it, it. It has a really wonderful pace in the context of the whole film because we sort of get that the the overall film is tying these longer uh, segments together of these stories and and showing how these elements relate to one another. That sequence it happens so fast that you you can get the the whole concept of what just happened. Um, it, you know, it, it feels almost like the resolution of a slapstick, like a Marx Brothers or a you know a, a three stooges kind of a thing uh, but it happens so quickly that you get the whole concept and still get to keep the recursion kind of the the narrative folding in on itself element that, that i think is really gratifying if you keep up with it agree jason statham uh as turkish probably his best movie ever i think so too what's so cool about it is as an incredibly talented physical actor 
right? I mean, he's a he's an incredibly physical guy and, and yeah. can totally pull off the physical uh, elements. Yeah, you almost would have expected him to be cast as as um, you know Mickey as Mickey, right? As the boxer, right? He certainly has the physique and the talent to pull it off. But he also, I think, he just did, does a great job as the. Uh, kind of clumsy, stuck in the middle of this thing, kind of amateur uh, boxing promoter. And I, you used the word amateur earlier. I think emphasis really on amateur. All of these guys are, you oh, know, yeah. they wear the clothes of their field, but they're truly incompetent at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know, actually, if there's any character other than maybe Doug the Head, the diamond buyer, who isn't an amateur. Because Doug the Head is 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 starts it and ends it. Because he ends up with the diamond. He does. Right. And, and he runs the larger operation. I guess Dennis Farina, too, runs his larger operation. Now, what happened to Dennis Farina? He just... Uh, we see him heading back to London at the end, Yeah, right? he goes back to London to start the whole thing over again. Right. So I, our assumption is, at least my assumption is, Dennis Farina ultimately ends up with the diamond, as was intended all along. This right. is this is like the uh, Indiana Jones didn't actually need to be in Raiders of the Lost Ark for the thing to work out just as it was. Like this <laughs> whole movie did not need to happen. Ultimately, Farina was going to get the diamond. Right. It's just a lot more fun the way he got it. Yeah, much more fun the way he got it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Dennis Farina is is just a treat to watch because he looks. He always brings this air of what the hell am I doing here to every movie he's he does, and that's part of his kind of his kind of vibe. But it really works well here because he's with people who are truly out of out of sorts. My favorite bit with him is uh, when he's in the hallway and uh, and Boris the Blade comes in. And uh, and it's right when those guys are in the hallway, uh, Vinny and Saul are in the hall and they're they're going to take the briefcase from him. And and then uh, and then uh, Bullet Tooth Tony shoots through the wall to get uh, to get him. And just the, the bit with Boris the Blade, how he just is like he's that uh, that guy who just won't die. And it's uh, just so funny how how many times Bullet Tooth Tony has to shoot him to uh, to bring him down finally. Yeah. And it works well for Tyrone. Yes, yes it does. Tooth, Tony runs out. He he tries to shoot his last bullet into Tyrone, and and uh, and he's already used his whole clip on on uh, on Boris on Boris the bullet dodger. Uh, that is actually really funny. I had I, I weirdly had not made that connection that they call him the bullet dodger, and they it took him like nine shots to actually. Kill it, him. it actually took full twelve. The full twelve. That's that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, if you count him, because he he empties, he pulls his clip out and puts a new clip in. As he's walking down towards Boris, he said, Boris, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he just starts shooting him, shooting him, shooting him. And finally that 12th shot and he turns around and get Tyrone and he's out. That's and that was That was after having been run down <laughs> while right. he's standing in the middle of the road. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, of course, is uh, Raid Serbegia, who is uh, one of those character actors who always pops up and is just always a delight to see on screen. Uh, we got to talk about Vinnie Jones, though. I, I don't think I ever really looked up any of Vinnie Jones's background. Uh, he's a rugby you player. Know, you guys know about him? I know he's a professional rugby player. Footballer, yeah. So yeah. he he played. He was known as uh, as um, foot one of footballers hard men. He became famous. Do you know this? Why he became famous? Grabbing the. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they call that apparently. Did not know this. Marking another player, he marked Newcastle United's Paul Gascoigne by grabbing his testicles in the game. Having to get photographed doing it, and it's of uh, Vinnie Jones's back. You just see Jones on his back, and I mean, he's just got a handle on him. 
uh, and the guy that he's got a handle on, it's right on his face, and the agony in his eyes. There is just... it is. <laughs> you found, found it? it? I found <laughs> it. Oh, he does not look good. Yeah. <laughs> he does not look good. Did you know that, uh, Andy, or no? No, I had no idea. I mean, I, I had read that he uh, had played... Uh, played football but i I didn't realize that uh ow look at the and look at jones's face he's just (laughs) steely eyed like this is just a thing i do just look at how short those shorts are i know look (laughs) at those thighs wow man is that a goalie that he's doing that to no the striped shirt or that's just the stripes it's the ref (laughs) yeah That's uh, we're obviously going to be putting that link in the show notes. So if you uh, miss that, you gotta check out the show notes. <laughs> wow, that'll be worth it. That Oof. is brutal. He is so good in this film, and this is just his second film after Lockstock. He hasn't done uh, a whole lot else, has he? He did uh, the Midnight Man. He's done a number. He's got a regular spot on Gallivant, the TV series. Um, he Kill Kane, Bite, Gridlocked, uh, Six Ways to Die. Checkmate, Rivers Nine, Awaken. Have you seen any of these? Mercenary Absolution. He's got a number of of credits. He's got like ninety one credits to his uh, uh, to his title now. Um, of course, most of these were after uh, Snatch. Before that, he had done. You know what he did do in um, in two thousand is the uh, hit remake, uh, Nicolas Cage remake of Gone in sixty seconds. Uh, oh, that's right, Dominic. That's Center. right. I remember. Yeah. I remember him in that. Yeah, I think he's a busy guy. It's just he's in a lot of things that I haven't seen. Yes. Right. <laughs> oh, geez, right. he did Swordfish. The I only other thing I remember that. him in is X-Men The Last Stand, where he played Juggernaut. Yep. Uh, anyway, he's he's done a number of things. And, and what but, about Guy Ritchie? He doesn't seem like he's done much since uh, getting a divorce from Madonna. <laughs> yeah, I think he's I think he's practically more famous for, for his relationship with Madonna than his career i mean as a director he's only got 13 credits uh, and a couple of those are video games or uh, video music videos um uh, shorts what was his most recent uh film well, well man from uncle did... okay right and then he's doing uh he's right now i think he's currently filming the knights of the round table movie which is supposed to come out next year yeah okay so i mean i mean he's been busy enough i mean since he did snatch then he did uh swept away which was that huge bomb he did with madonna Right. Um, Revolver, which I missed. Um, he did Rock and Rolla, which I also missed. And then he did the two Sherlock Holmes movies. So it's kind of been like, you know, kind of consistently busy, but not like cranking him out uh, every year. I got to I gotta say, uh, talking to, um, about Bricktop for a second, I mean, you had mentioned how uh, just badass this guy is. I mean, I think that this is one of those uh, just just evil characters in film that is just so well written and just such an interesting guy. I mean, I, I, I mean, he's a terrifying character, but I don't know. There's something about the way that he's written that I could have just had him on the screen all the time. I just absolutely loved hearing his stories, like the whole thing where he's talking about, you know, why you feed uh, people to pigs to get rid of them and stuff like that. I mean, just like some crazy stuff. And with those glasses on his face, I mean, his eyes already kind of have kind of a a slightly off look, but then you put those like thick uh, Coke bottle glasses on him and he just has this look that is just, I mean, I thought it was just really terrifying. I loved Alan Ford as this character. Yeah. And I think part of it too is the way that they shot him. Uh, you know, they always they always shot him from below, looking up at him, which kind of creates a sense of power, uh, you know, not to be messed with type of a, of a feeling. Um, and, you know, every time every time he speaks, it's like you're forced to listen. 
Uh, even even though Vinny and Saul didn't know who he was when he walked into the shop, uh, it was clear that he was in charge the moment he stepped foot into there, which is just badass. <laughs> there's there's such an awesome bit. I, I love that you point out that he was usually shot from below, and I think that's I, that is right on. What's so cool about it is in some of his most intense sequences, he's shot from below, but he's always surrounded by people like Errol, who are much larger than he is. Mm-hmm. So there's that little bit of visual irony where he's he is you know he, he's shot from below, but and even though we know he is small in stature, he is really large because these guys are are terrified of him um, because he does things like. As he's walking out of the ring on the first time, I this creeped me out. As he says, uh, he stops the guy who says, "Oh, thanks for you know nothing." Wherever yeah. you are. he says, "If you stop me while I'm walking again, I will cut your Jacobs off." And then out of camera, off camera, you hear the knife open, and right. then the guy pulls his hand away from his groin with blood on it. Yeah, trying to make sense of what he just did there felt kind of like he was cutting his Jacobs off. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was the warning. Uh, you know, before, before he actually feeds them to the pigs, so to speak. I love, I I, I love the speech though, that he gives about the pigs, man. When he says, be wary of any man who owns a pig farm. (laughs) (laughs) It did make me question, like, do I know anybody who has a lot of pigs? Because I really should start thinking about that. You know, the first time I watched it, I actually started looking that up to see if that was all true. Uh, because it was pretty shocking that you know a pig could consume eight pounds of human flesh and chew through bone like butter in an hour or whatever it was and uh and every you know it's it's hard to search that stuff on google without (laughs) without raising raising some flags but uh it seemed pretty believable at least you know i guess anything that that alan ford will tell me i'll believe (laughs) <laughs> Alan well, Ford, it, <laughs> a voice of uh, voice of reason. Yeah. They they did the same thing, the same uh, uh, the same thing in um, uh, what was the third Hannibal? Uh, Hannibal, yeah, the third Lecter right. uh, book and movie. Uh, it was all about the pigs, and and it was the same sort of thing. But what I like so much about Bricktop's speech is just how mechanical it is, right? How specific he is about it. That's one of the one of the like greatest written uh, uh, menacing speeches um that um that i've seen it's he just really pulls it off yeah well and he doesn't he doesn't give the speech as a threat he gives it just it's very factual the way he delivers it but you can like the subtext of it is is so threatening it's such an ensemble cast that's you know i feel like every character is is an amazing character that is easy to talk about well i'm just going to say back to bricktop real quick i thought it was interesting that they originally offered that part to sean connery really who uh who actually liked the script quite a bit and so uh matthew vaughn uh the producer arranged uh to screen Lockstock for him because he hadn't seen that just so he could kind of get a feel for what their filmmaking style was like right and he he liked it but he said that uh they weren't going to be able to afford him (laughs) so i'm not quite sure he didn't give uh, him the brad pitt discount I guess not. I guess not. Uh, This was that period in Connery's career where I feel like he probably should have given a few discounts because he started cranking out some real, real stinkers. I don't I don't feel like Sean Connery would have that ruthless, um, that ruthless effect uh, the way that Alan Ford does. Um, And maybe it's because, you know, there's a little bit of typecast when you think of Sean Connery. Uh, you, You know, you know his work, you know what he's capable of. Before Snatch, I'd never seen Alan Ford, and, and I don't know if I've seen Alan Ford since then. 
Um, I'm sure I have, and I just didn't realize it. But I don't know. He he's one of those mobsters that you. It's weird because from the get go, I felt like Bricktop was was the head honcho. Uh, he was the one not to be reckoned with. But after that first fight, he's you know there's multiple people getting on him. And he's the one backing away, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, I'll make it up to you. I promise I'll make it up to you. And from that point forward, it was like, well, who, who's in charge here? Because Bricktop kind of shows this, this strength that he runs the show, and he's the one who, who decides who lives and who dies. But at, the, you know, but at the fight, he's basically, he now owes favors to those guys, the same way uh, Turkish doesn't want to be in Bricktop's pocket. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I, I think there's an interesting point. On this Sean Connery, I don't think I would have been able to pull myself out of awareness that this is Sean Connery uh, in watching this film. I don't think I would have be, been able to let that go. Certainly not to the degree that I was able to let go that it, that this was Brad Pitt and, and not Mickey, you know. Um, I, I think that typecasting thing would have played very much against them in a Sean Connery cast. Uh, Matthew Vaughn uh, produced this thing. Yeah, he was uh, kind of uh, involved right away in uh, in Guy Ritchie's uh, uh, beginnings, uh, producing Lockstock with him, and then this, and then of course he became uh, quite the little director. And I I enjoy uh, both sides of him, producing and directing. I do too. The last time we talked about him on this show uh, was Kingsman: The Secret Service, which was such fantastic. a fun movie, fantastic, such a Love fun it. movie, yeah. yeah. You can almost get a sense watching Kingsman. The reason I li- maybe that's why I like Snatch so much is that there there are pieces of it that feel uh, similar visually. I think the way he handles action is is certainly I, I, you can feel like he sort of learned some things from working with uh, with um, Richie. Yeah, I mean even right away from Layer Cake. Um, I mean it's been a while since I've seen it, but I felt like that also kind of had had just a little bit of Guy Ritchie feel to it. Right. Yeah, I didn't realize that he directed Kickass. But yeah, I, I, I honestly, when I went and saw Kingsman, it was the first time in a long time that it was just a really fun movie from beginning to end. And Layer Cake, I thought was great too. I, I forgot about Layer Cake. Yeah, it's one of those movies that it's it's, it's kind of like this, where it's like I remember really enjoying it, but I just don't remember a whole lot about it. I, I feel like that one might be another one that's worth uh, revisiting. Yeah, Certainly. I mean, I, Dan, Daniel Craig uh, from an early you know an earlier film, I thought he was great. I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I think Tom Hardy's in it too, actually. Yeah, Tom Hardy, absolutely. Hardy, absolutely. Um, and that I was, I was just going to mention. I think uh, you know Daniel Craig. It sort of works against him that he was Bond because as soon as he became Bond, it's hard to remember what else he did. Well, I think, and I think that that was the film that kind of spurred them on to saying, "Hey, this guy could actually yeah. work as James Bond." Right. The one thing I, I would have loved to have seen more of Benicio del Toro. He he yeah he leaves with some indignity. Yeah, he does. And, and I thought, you know, I thought we were going to kind of dive a little bit deeper into his character. Um, but it, it was it, it kind of came out of nowhere. It's like that scene in The Departed when uh, at, towards the end when they're in the elevator and the elevator doors open and and uh, he gets shot in the head. Uh, I wasn't expecting Benicio Del Toro to just get shot in the head by uh, the bullet dodger. It yeah. did come. Yeah. It did come very abruptly. Yeah, uh, and, and, yeah, and it was over. It was like, okay, Benicio's done now, you know. And I was kind of the first time I saw it, I was kind of waiting to see if he comes back in one of the flashbacks. He probably had three or four days of work on that thing. <laughs> but a lot of costume changes. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, let's see. Okay, so into the production. We've talked just a little bit about sound. Sound mix, uh, Simon Hayes, and sound design and effects editor, Matthew Collinge. You said, to, initially, you said you found some sound problems besides the opening uh, sequence. What is it about shooting a movie like this that causes those kinds of challenges to creep up? Um, well, I felt like there was a lot of car work in this movie. Uh, it looked to me like it was all poor man's process, um, meaning done on a budget so that you can't basically cable the car to a trailer and, and you know, do it do it the right way, so to speak. But I could tell that, you know, the talent in the car was wired because every time there was there was seatbelts or, you know, any kind of movement, you can't help but hear the rustling of the clothing. Um, personally, you know, and it's all, it's all the mixer's decision how this stuff goes down. But when I have people in a car, I never wire just because it's added noise floor to, you know, the ISOs that I don't want. And I'm all about planting mics. You know, we were doing a driving scene yesterday or on Friday with um, Mark Wahlberg and he's driving himself and, you know, he's got all this crap on the car to light it and, you know, cameras mounted and there's cameras in the car and all that. And there's no place for me to be. Uh, and there's no way for me to actually mix. So Really, the way to do the way you do those is you set it and forget it. But it's all about kind of giving yourself options with plant mics. I, I put mics in strategic places in cars, and I felt like on this movie it would have uh, it would have done a lot to open up some kind of ambient boundary microphones in the cars because it kind of fills in the sound of the presence of their voices. There's things like that. There, there was obvious areas that were buried and muffled, and you know were clear that you couldn't get a boom in there even though the shot was tight it, it seems like it was pretty obvious that he was shooting two cameras and he must have had one wide and one tight which unfortunately seems to be the norm these days and that just ruins your ability to fit a mic in there somewhere where you can't see it yeah i mean when when directors shoot these movies the last thing that they think about is sound um you know there's there's directors like tarantino who rely heavily on sound and they'll shoot a movie around sound um, so much so that you know like the hateful eight uh mark yolano is the mixer for all of all of tarantino's films um he doesn't do a single bit of adr there's no looping in the hateful eight there's no looping in pulp fiction uh because he shoots with one camera so you're always getting your perspective if you're shooting big high and wide and you can get a boom at the edge of the frame and it sounds big high and wide then you're accomplishing your perspective. And I feel like not only does it help the movie greatly in the storytelling and sounding the way it looks, but it keeps your actors comfortable because it means that you don't have to sit there and bug them and wire them and, and, and touch them in between every setup uh, in order to try and make one camera sound the way it looks, which is tight, and the other camera that's big and wide is what you're using your boom for. Can you tell, like, when, when there's ADR? Like, do, could you pinpoint any ADR from this film? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the whole opening sequence was looped. The robbery? Yeah, the robbery was looped. There's not... I didn't notice a lot in this movie, to be honest with you. There's uh, a couple times when they're Saul and Vinny and Tyrone are in the car uh, with the dog waiting or not with the dog at that point. Or were they with the dog when they were waiting for the uh, Frankie Four Fingers to go in with the briefcase to the bookies? I don't think so, not yet. I don't think the dog was there yet. But, you know, they're shooting at the backs of these three guys. And if you can, if you catch a glimpse of, of the side of their cheek or, you know, it turns into a dirty over, 
you can see that the guy you're listening to isn't talking right now. Um, you know, stuff like that kind of I pick up on and it's not that it bugs me. It's part of the process. But a lot of times, you know, when, when they loop, it's not necessarily because of sound issues. It's because of performance issues or line changes and stuff like that. Are you, do you find you're really annoying to go to a movie with? Do your, do your friends and family complain that they want to sit like not next nine to you? Or? Out, nine out of 10 times I go to the movies by myself um, just because I, I pick it apart to a certain extent. And the thing is, too, that you got to realize, and it's, it's, a, it's such a crappy um, stigma about it, but sound guys are grumpy. Sound guys are negative. Sound guys, <laughs> like, it's, it's, I mean, it's an uphill battle. It's like as soon as I walk on set, right, I'll go on to the scouts, and we'll be on the same bus, and we'll be sharing lunches and beers, and everybody's friends, and then as soon as we start day one of shooting, it's like I'm the <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> Like there's 200, there's 200 people on set and one gives a about what it sounds like. Everybody there from props to set deck to grip, lighting, electric, whoever is there to make a pretty picture. I don't care what it looks like. I just want it to sound good. So I'm telling, you know, I'm the, I'm the bad guy who has to tell everybody to turn off their phones and get away from set and move the generator and turn off your truck. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard being that guy, but it's super important because I have a crew of a boom operator and a utility. It's super important that they're nice and sweet. So that way they can get what they want on set and we can do our job while I'm the, you know, while I'm the, the Grinch, so to speak. So <laughs> that being said, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's always an uphill battle. And when I go to the movies, I'm a critic because I know... I know how, how it was made or how it's done. And I'm the worst critic on my movies. I'm never happy with any of the movies that I've done. Uh, there's always something. You know, I, I just went and saw 10 Cloverfield. There's a fish tank in the, in the dungeon, in the cellar, you know, in the bunker. We shoot the wide with the fish tank on so you see it. And I record 30 seconds of ambience of the fish tank bubbling. And then we shut it off for the next six weeks and get rid of the fish. Okay. But in right. every scene of 10 Cloverfield, you hear that fish tank bubbling in the background. And it drives me absolutely bananas because I tried so hard. I mean, they were exotic fish. We had to find a place for these exotic fish to go. It's like I'm trying so hard to isolate and, and get rid of the things that, that I don't see because if I don't see it, I don't want to hear it. It's the same way if we're shooting faces and traffic's behind us and I hear traffic, I'll, I'll go ballistic. But if we're shooting the other direction, so that way we can see the traffic behind them moving, fine. Let's listen to it, you know? Right. It's just, it's stuff like that, that, that kind of gets me riled up. <laughs> That's crazy. I don't know that I would have thought about the fish tank thing, but, um, so you, what you're saying, you don't want, even though the fish tank, you imagine if I were sitting in the cellar, I would always be hearing the fish tank. So wouldn't I, wouldn't that be part of the natural soundscape? No, because the whole point of recording it for a few, for 30 seconds clean is that you can lay it in wherever you want, which is what they did. Right, right. Whereas, whereas to have it on over dialogue, you're, you're married to it. You can't isolate it from the dialogue tracks. If I want to basically separate a line in post after the fact, you're sure. going to basically have this, this block of time where you're missing the bubbling if it were on. So I want to record everything with it off and let them right. lay it in as they want. The problem that I had was that they lay it in to a point where you hear it. Uh, and I guess in my mind, if we're shooting next to it, then sure. But if we're shooting in 
I don't know. If, if we're if we're in the kitchen of the room, you wouldn't hear it in the kitchen of the room. They were just a little bit too aggressive with it. I'm not I'm not bashing it because I think the post sound guys did a fantastic job. The movie relies a lot on sound, which I love. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like I should get in a radio because I care about the sound so much. But um, yeah. but anyway, the the whole point of my band, my, my long winded story is that I'm not the easiest person to go to movies with. And I'm critical. <laughs> I'm very critical. Well, you'd be happy to know that uh, that uh, Matthew Vaughn and Guy Ritchie started a uh, a fine on the set of this film. Anytime someone's cell phone would go off or anything, uh, any issues that people caused, they actually made them put money into a jar. Yeah, we do that on a lot of movies, actually. It, it goes into the $5 Friday bucket. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting, though, because I, I, think it's, uh, I think it speaks critically to especially a film like this, um, how so much of the style is so um, in your face. You know, you have a very um, aggressive uh, visual style and an editing style, and I think it makes sense that the sound style would also be that way. And I think they play it up um, sometimes more than others. I mean, even just the way that um, the thing that I'm I'm remembering right now is is when some of the supers come on the screen of the different cities that people are in, and you get little sound effects coming in with the the name of the cities, and then going out with the name of the cities. And uh, it, it was a very fun style that they had all through the film. And so, I mean, I think that they, uh, you know, both the cinematography uh, by Tim Maurice Jones and the editing by John Harris, along with all the audio, uh, I think it all ties in nicely in kind of to help create this style that Guy Ritchie has. And I, I think despite problems that are in it, I think it's very easy to just enjoy the story because when a story is really fun and you're really into the story, I think it is a lot easier to gloss over any issues that you might have. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. You know, I think we, you mentioned Tim Reese Jones, uh, just overall the the visual production and I think it, the editing of this film is it it's a uh, it's a pretty ridiculous edit. Uh, just with all the the crazy uh, looping narratives and uh, much credit to those guys for for pulling that off because it it does besides the dog thing which I I'm still kind of stewing on uh, it, it works really really well it's it's visually tight it's easy to watch and and uh, not too terribly distracting so uh, terrific work did did either of you guys think that there would be a follow up to this movie based on I, where it was left off I didn't think so um, I don't remember at the time when it. When it came out, I don't recall saying, gosh, this feels like they're setting it up for a sequel. I guess I could see that. It, it seems like it would be interesting to kind of continue the story and following this diamond um, as it kind of continues its journey now. Um, or maybe we continue following the story of the dog. I don't know whose story we'd follow. But um, I, it didn't cross my mind. Is that something that uh, that you thought of when you uh, when it finished? Just this last time, just yesterday when I watched it, you know, I, it occurred, it just felt like... We never see we never see uh, Avi get there um, to actually you know to, to claim the diamond that apparently is uh, that's his and there's still quite a few characters that remain after all the killings uh, you know it just seemed like there was there was some open ended areas that that could have still been fun to explore um, you know the the pikeys just disappear. And I would love to know <laughs> where Brad and, and the boys are at that point, Mickey. <laughs> right. Um, but I don't know. It just, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I guess I'm torn on that because I think you're right. I mean, these are, these were such fun characters to explore. Um, at, at the same time, I really do like the fact that it ends on a hard, the end, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it ends on that passport stamp, which I find really uh, there's a great sense of finality to it. And I, I guess maybe I'm sequeled out right now. I, I love the idea of a film that just gives me an isolated experience and I get to enjoy it. Um, don't worry. I mean, in 15 years, it'll be rebooted. <laughs> <laughs> With the same cast. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, mu- we uh, talked about the music a little bit. Again, the music was, was a, a little bit uh, uh, genre-defying. You hear this kind of music all over the place in these heist films now. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like, I, I don't know, I mean, definitely going back to Tarantino at the beginning of this, I mean, he certainly established this uh, brilliant way to kind of find obscure songs and build these really fantastic soundtracks. I feel like Guy Ritchie kind of uh, took that type, and I think, he, I feel like he enhanced it quite a bit, because I really enjoy the, it just feels like his songs almost fit a little more. Uh, they don't feel quite as anachronistic as sometimes Tarantino's do, as fun as I, I think Tarantino's soundtracks are. I just really like the songs in this. They really seem to fit this this world a little bit. Yeah, I thought the music was fantastic. And, and I really like the hard cuts out of the music. Uh, as soon as, you know, a, a barrel of a gun is snapped shut, you know, or the revolver snapped shut, or as soon as a book is closed, uh, you know, as soon as there's a punch from Mickey, it's like the music just snaps out and we're back into the story. Let's. Uh, how did it? How did it end up doing, Andy? Did you look up any awards, uh, or uh, did it? Did it score well? I didn't find any awards that it uh, received, but it did end up. Uh, it did end up finding its uh, audience eventually, and it certainly has kind of become a. I guess you could almost say a cult classic now. This film cost ten million when it was made, which is about thirteen and a half million in today's dollars. It ended up grossing uh, here in the U.S. about thirty million, and overseas about fifty-three and a half million. So all told. It uh, it did real well for itself. It made a total adjusted gross of about 113 million. So that's at about an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost a million. Had this movie been made today, it would have had a sequel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with that kind of money. It yes, it would have. So yeah, no. I mean, it, it really found its audience. I think it was just initially. I think it just uh, people weren't quite sure what to make of it, and I don't think the critics were very favorable with it. I think they all felt. It was just a, a rehash of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which I think is just, I mean, maybe it was because they came out so close together, but I think that they're both so different and so fresh. I just, I don't see them as being um, uh, just, you know, rehashes. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I think it's time for us to dig into uh, why people show up and rank it. You head over to flickchart.com, everybody, and you log in with your account. And what it's going to do is when you search for this film, it's going to present you two movies, this movie and one other movie, a completely random movie. And you get to choose one movie against the other, which one you think is better. Now, on our list, we have all the films that we've talked about, 200 some odd films, and it will rank, uh, it, it will present us a choice of this movie, Snatch, against all the other movies that we have talked about. It'll give us about eight, eight or 10 choices, and we have to pick and see which one we like better right now. Filmo off Filmo. If, you, if you're on a desert island and all you have are these two movies, which one would you watch right now? And it's, it tends to give, give people a, a little bit of uh, ulceritis, but uh, we get through it, and it ends up being kind of a fun, uh, fun discussion. So here we go. First things first. And if, if, we, if there's a movie that we run across that you haven't seen, don't worry about it. Uh, Andy and I will break that and uh, move right on. So All right, so first up, we have Snatch or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Snatch. Little Cohen brothers. Are you, are you ready, Andy? For the first time, <laughs> snatch. Top of the O brother block. This is a kind of a consistent thing here. O brother is kind of the first one up because it's yeah. right in the middle of our chart, and so it always ends up blocking a lot of movies out of it. 
Boy, I'm torn. I actually feel like I'm going to pick Snatch. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I would have said that um, before you'd watched before it. Before I rewatched it. I'm but telling I had, you. I had so much fun with it. So uh, I'm going to pick Snatch. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Snatch or Boogie Nights. Snatch. It's another good movie. I'm going to do Snatch, though. Yeah. I think I got to do Snatch, too. With a bullet, Andy. I know. It's moving right up there. They have a great poster for Snatch that's done in... Uh, uh, that fantastic Saul Bass style of uh, it's the hand of uh, Frankie Four Fingers. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, finger it's great. Diamond on it. <laughs> yep. All right, Snatch or National Lampoon's Vacation? Oh, snatch. snatch. I I feel like I have to go with Vacation because it's just like classic from my childhood. Hey, but thank snatch God it doesn't takes matter. It. I know. <laughs> you guys already got it up there. <laughs> now this one this one's gonna be tough for me. Snatch or Brazil? which is my favorite film. So I'm going to go with Brazil. I've never seen it. Oh. All right, Pete, then it's all on you. Well, I, I'm, I'll am i give you Brazil on this one too, Andy. I think... Uh, really? Yeah. Yep. That's a tough one to beat for us. We're, we like the Brazil. I'm going to write that one down. Is that the one that Abraham talked about? Uh, No, he talked about my favorite year with oh, that's uh, right. Peter O'Toole. Yeah. All right, Snatch or Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Snatch. It's tough here. Snatch. Really? Yeah. I'm totally close encounters. No, we're gonna get we're gonna get letters. <laughs> we are gonna get letters. I'm glad I'm on the right side of the letters. <laughs> All right, snatch or stand by me. Man, stand by me's got like a per, I have a per, I have a place in my heart for stand by me because it's that adventure as a boy. It's almost like Goonies. Yeah, of your youth. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm gonna have to stay with snatch though. Well, I'm gonna say stand by me. I'm gonna go snatch, Andy. Wow. All right. I picked a good one, Andy. You picked a good one. It's moving way up there. Snatch ended up at number 14 on my personal list. It's, my personal I know. Picture. It's really good. Yeah. Here's another uh, a speakeasy ranking. Snatch or Casino Royale? Speaking of Daniel Craig, it's James Casino, Bond. Casino Royale for me. Yeah, I'll pick Casino Royale. What about you, Coffee? Uh, I'm going to stay with Snatch. It's gritty. It's It's darker. And it, it is funny. Ca- Casino, Roy- is Casino Royale the one with Javier, Javier Bardem? No, it's no. not. It's the one with uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Who cried cried blood. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's good. Right. At the table. Yeah. That's right. I'm staying with Snatch. All right. Well, you know, it moved way up there. It ranked as number 18 on our list. And there I think we go. that's a pretty fair spot for it. I mean, I, I'd still put Stand By Me above it, but that's okay. It, it's right between Snowpiercer and Stand By Me. So I think it did it did It's good tough spot. to break the top 20 anymore. It's tough to do that. The last thing we do is uh, is just a straight-up star ranking. This is for one of our other uh, favorite sites, letterbox.com. Uh, a scale of one to five stars, where do you put this film, Goffy? Four and a half. Yeah, I'm four and a half. Andy? I am at four, but uh, it's a very favorable four. Yeah, very favorable four. This was awesome. So, what a great yeah, film to pick. I'm, 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 glad, so I'm glad yeah. you guys uh, enjoyed it. I'm actually really glad that you switched it because as much as I love Pulp Fiction, you know, it's been talked about a lot. And like you said at the beginning, I just feel Snatch is one of those films that uh, kind of came and went weirdly. And I don't feel like it. I don't feel like that's fair. So I'm really glad to have watched it again. Yeah. Uh, And when I am, you know, I I didn't know if I was able to switch because I was going back and forth between Snatch and Memento. But I didn't know if I wanted to really sit there and wrap my head around Memento again. Um, but you know, it's, it's another one of my favorites. Well, this is terrific. Uh, where would you like people to find you on the web? This is uh, we, we need a plug where, what are you working on? What do you want to share and, and where can people catch up with you? 
you know, right now I'm doing uh, Peter Berg's Patriots Day, which is the true uh, true story of the Boston Marathon bombing, which, as I mentioned earlier in the show, is tomorrow, is the marathon. Uh, and that'll be out in January of 17, I believe. And then after this, I go to Atlanta uh, to start a film called Den of Thieves with the director of London Has Falling, uh, or L- London Has Fallen. Which one? It's one of those London two. London Has Fallen, yeah. Uh, and it's with Gerard Butler again, and, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, another run around, bang, bang, shoot em up type of movie. <laughs> But, you know, I, I used to have a website for my company, iMix. Uh, I don't even know if it's up anymore. Uh, <laughs> but really, IMDb is, is kind of the only place that, that, I'm, I, that I think I'm listed. So Well, we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Yeah, so cool. Follow you. Yeah, yeah. If you just type in coffee, uh, K-O-F-F-Y. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us in the next Real Speakeasy Coffee. We're glad to have had you out here today. Yeah, this was fun. I'm, I'm glad uh, we did this. And for those of you out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Pinterest, Letterboxd, Flickchart, and now YouTube. And don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help more people find us. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time... I've got to go shopping for a periwinkle blue caravan. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. 
The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 